My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me, they wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. And I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like the pot shirt, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me down in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. And stand in awe of him, all of you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him. But he has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. At the ends of the earth shall remember, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all, bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. And Matthew 27, 45 through 50. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Ila, Ila, Lima, Shabbatani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, This man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. 
This is the word of the Lord. Hollywood has shown us how great heroes are supposed to die. If you take the 1995 Academy Award winning film Braveheart, for example, it's about the heroic story of William Wallace, a Scottish landowner who led England in a revolt, or rather led Scotland in a revolt against England. He's ultimately captured by King Edward for his crimes. He is uh, drawn and quartered, and uh, for those of you that saw the movie, at the, the climax of the movie, as he's horribly tortured, he cries out, Freedom! You'll never forget that if you've seen that movie. Jesus' last words, by contrast, are a question. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, why doesn't Jesus end more heroically? Why, why not with more triumph? Why not, um, there is one God, uh, the, the kingdom of God reigns. Uh, why not something like that? Why, why a question? What is he doing here? Well, I suppose we shouldn't be surprised that Jesus does not follow the traditional heroic script. He's never done that. Uh, There were many around Jerusalem that were hoping he'd be a William Wallace type uh, leader. But he quickly began to dispel that on Palm Sunday as he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey instead of a war horse. And it went downhill from there. He continued to do all the wrong things. And his countrymen who celebrated him on Palm Sunday abandoned him by Thursday and cried out for his crucifixion. And so on Friday morning, Jesus is whipped and mocked and nailed to a cross on a rocky hill a hundred yards outside of the ancient gate. And the crowd scoffs, Matthew's Gospel tells us, and those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads. So the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, he saved others, he can't save himself. At noon, the sky grows dark. For three hours, an eerie eclipse plunges the city of peace into uneasy shadow. And then, Jesus begins to pray Psalm 22, which begins, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What I'd like to ask this Palm Sunday as we prepare for Holy Week, and I have been praying that this would be a very significant Holy Week for you, even if you've not been able to participate in Lent very much this far, that you would take the time this week to read the gospel accounts of the Passion, to spend time with Jesus as he prepares for the cross, to identify with him in his suffering and and celebrate with him in his resurrection. I believe there are three reasons why Jesus prays this psalm of lament as his final prayer. And the first one is this. Jesus knew that he was fulfilling Messianic prophecy. 
Now, there are 150 psalms. Jesus grew up in the synagogue. Like most devout Jews, he would have memorized many, or if not most, of the psalms. So he knew the Psalter. He knew the classic lament psalms, of which this is one. Uh, The psalmist is lamenting because as a just man, he's suffering at the hand of his enemies. He's suffering so badly that he feels that God has abandoned him, yet he knows that God will rescue him. And so it's normal that Jesus would turn to this song as a, a psalm as a prayer. But there's something more going on in this psalm. In addition to being a psalm of lament, it is a prophecy of the crucifixion of the Messiah. The church father, Tertullian, said that the whole passion was found in this psalm. In other words, Psalm 22, which was written some perhaps a thousand years before Jesus, foreshadows the death of Jesus in specific detail. And so I believe one of the reasons he brought it to mind was because he knew he was at the nexus of history. He knew that he was fulfilling the terrible burden of history. He knew that all of time was was colliding upon him on the cross at that moment. And so he reads it. There are at least five uh, aspects of this prophecy. We could do a whole sermon on that, but we won't. But in verse 7 of the psalm, uh, it, it says, They wag their heads. And in Matthew 27, we read that passerbys wag their heads as the Lord suffers. In verse 8, the, the psalmist's enemies taunt, He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. And that's what the chief priests and the scribes now are saying to Jesus. In verse 14, Jesus, or the psalmist says, All my bones are out of joint. And this is now true of Jesus because of the beating he endured before the crucifixion. In verse 16, the psalmist cries, They've pierced my hands and feet. And of course, this had happened to Jesus just hours before. In verse 18, the psalmist laments, They divide my garments among them. For my clothing they cast lots. And as Jesus is thinking about this psalm, he looks down and the Roman soldiers are casting lots and dividing his clothes. See, Jesus understood his entire life mission as a fulfillment of prophecy. Jesus tells the Jewish leaders in John 5, 39, you search the scriptures, you think there's eternal life there, but in there they bear witness of me. And after his resurrection, when he meets the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and they don't understand, he says, oh foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And then Luke adds, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. And so we're not surprised to see the Lord turn to this wonderful messianic psalm as he is fulfilling it. Because he is saying to the world, I am the promised one. I am the one the prophecies predicted. Now, as we read further in this little story, we find that many people misunderstand what the Lord is saying. He speaks in Aramaic. They think he's calling for Elijah. And they do different things as a response. And, and of course, it is very easy to misunderstand these things. What, what, what is it that Jesus would be saying to us tonight through words like this? Well, 
One thing I believe he's saying is, I'm the one. You can trust me. I fulfilled ancient prophecy after ancient prophecy in exquisite detail. Only the Messiah could do that. Now, I know how to Google. And if you Google this subject, you'll find all sorts of things online about it. And it seems to be a favorite pastime of some to to, to show that, well, he didn't actually fulfill the prophecy this way, and he really didn't fulfill it that way. And, and, And there's different ways that you can read this material. You could read that Jesus set the whole thing up. Some people read it that way online. You could read that the the disciples made it all up. You could read that online. Well, one of the things I learned when I was over there at UT doing my, my little master's in history was a little bit about reading ancient source material. And, and one of the things I realized is that you never know exactly what happened in history. You can't. You weren't there. There is no absolute certainty when you're dealing with 2,000-year-old historical records. What you do is you look at the source material, and you evaluate it, and you try to determine what the best narrative is that makes sense of the source material. And when I apply the, the principles that I learned at the University of Tennessee over four years in a Master's of History to this source material, without a doubt, the best reading of the material, the, the reading that makes the most sense, is that Jesus Christ actually was fulfilling ancient prophecies. It would take me much more faith to believe that he set this whole thing up. Or that the disciples, 11 of whom would die martyrs' death, made it up and then died for it. Can't prove it to you. But I think the traditional story is the better one. So if you're struggling with faith this Easter and and get ready, it's Holy Week, so every magazine and news broadcast will bring up the latest book or the latest scholar who talks about how none of it's true. happens every year. It's good for ratings. If you need some encouragement, if you're wondering about the truthfulness of the gospel, I think Jesus would say tonight, I'm the one. I fulfilled the prophecy. Well, there's a second reason why our Lord cites Psalm 22 in the cross. This may be the hardest to understand. I'll do my best, but I can't explain it fully. Jesus cites the first lines of this psalm. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because... He is abandoned by God at that moment. Jesus grasps the Old Testament. He knows he's the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, the perfect perfect God-man, despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. He'd heard that read in synagogue. He knew what it meant. He knew it meant him. And if you want a, a bizarre exercise in, in imagination, what would it have been like as a seven-year-old, an eight-year-old, a nine-year-old on Passover, 
uh, as a little Jewish boy, when Jesus watched all these lambs stream into Jerusalem and saw their blood flow through the streets as they were sacrificed, what would it have been like for him to, to hear the, the rabbi read Isaiah 53? I wonder how early he knew that he was the lamb. He certainly bears that awareness in the Gospels. He understands what what Paul would call the doctrine of propitiation. Uh, Romans 3, 23. uh, For all have sinned, fall short of glory of the God. And all are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Paul says Jesus Christ on the cross was our propitiation. Now, what does that mean? God is both loving and just. He is loving. He wants nothing more than to be in relationship with you. But He is just, and therefore He has to punish Sin. And the Bible calls God's righteous anger against sin His wrath. Now how can God be both loving and just at the same time? He can be by offering the life of His own Son as payment for our sin. And so propitiation is a sacrifice that bears God's wrath to the end that it changes God's wrath to divine favor. Now sometimes on this Sunday or Good Friday, uh, over the the many years, I I have preached on the horrors of the crucifixion. I don't know if we've done that here in a while, and it's a worthy study. It's, It's a terrible way to die. It's the hardest, one of the hardest ways for a human being to die. You, You suffocate in the end over hours. But the deepest pain that Jesus felt on the cross when he experienced the full wrath of his Father poured out on his own soul for his sins, was for our sins, was the, the abandonment of the Father. Because for an instant, a millisecond, in some mysterious way we cannot fathom, even within the eternal unity of the Trinity, the Holy Father could not bear to look at the sin of the world on his son's soul, and he turned away. And at the moment he turns away, our Lord says, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani! And dies. How could this be? How on earth could this be? He'd been abandoned by the disciples. He could understand that. He'd been abandoned by the people. He could understand that. How could the Father, who he'd been one with from all eternity, turn his back on him? It's because of our sin. The New Testament tried to describe it in different ways. 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. 2 Corinthians 5.19, and Christ God was reconciling the world to himself. 
At that moment, Hitler's sins were on Jesus. At that moment, he was paying for the sins of every sex trafficker, every abusive parent, every adulterer, every ugly stain that's on every human heart, every self-righteous thought, every judgmental attitude, every ounce of envy, every drop of greed, every cry of self-pity, every narcissistic act, every crime against the planet, every corporate scandal that's ever been committed or ever will be committed. It all was on him. And God could not bear to look. As one writer put it, when he cried out, he showed that he was finally cut off from the sweet fellowship with his heavenly Father that had been the unfailing source of his inward strength and the element of greatest joy in a life filled with sorrow. As Jesus bore our sins on the cross, he was abandoned by his heavenly Father. Another writer wrote, So then an actual and dreadful separation took place between the Father and the Son. It was due to our sins and their just reward. And Jesus expressed this horror of great darkness, this God-forsakenness, by quoting the only verse in Scripture which actually described it, and which he had perfectly fulfilled. Feel abandoned. You feel betrayed. You feel like no one's there for you. Do you feel alone? Do you feel forgotten? He knows. He knows. He has tasted a depth of abandonment and forsakenness and forgottenness and solitude and aloneness that no human being can ever put pin to. And so when we say, well, where is God when we hurt? Where is God when I suffer? Where is God when I break up with my boyfriend? Where is God when people don't understand me? Where is God when the abuser abuses? Where is God when I'm fired from my job? Where is God when friends turn from me? In his son on the cross, bearing all the evil of the world. He knows. Well, the third reason why I believe Jesus quotes the 22nd Psalm on the cross is because I I think he needed hope. No, he knows he's going to rise again. Mark 8, 31. Jesus then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and after three days rise again. He knew the rest of the story. But in his humanness, he is like us. We know the rest of the story. We know that Sunday follows Friday. 
We know the movements of lament. We know that God rescues us. But when you are on the cross, when you are suffering, when you feel abandoned, when you lack hope, when the clouds overhead are dark and you constantly live in the shadows of your own despair and self-disgust, it's so easy to forget hope. And I don't know how you put together the humanness and the godness of, of the Son of God. I don't know how you put that two together. But I know the Gospels paint a very human man going through this suffering. That's why he cries out on the night before, my God, he says, please take this from me. Somehow in his humanness, even he knows he has to go through it, he's pleading, please, anything but that. I think he's not just saying anything but the nail, anything but the whip. I, say, I think he's saying anything but you turning away, anything And when he finally goes through with it, at the moment of of his blackest despair, he begins to cite a psalm of lament. And as we've seen over, over Lent, the psalms of lament help the people of God move from despair to hope. They go from protest to petition to praise. They move to that wonderful place where you finally see, but God... And that happens in the 22nd Psalm. The psalmist declares, He has not hidden his face. He heard. And then at the end of the psalm, there's this wonderful little prophetic verse that sounds a lot like the Great Commission. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. So I believe Jesus listens to this psalm, recites it in his head at his darkest hour because he needed to lament. He needed that ancient prayer to to anchor his soul to and to move him towards hope. And maybe that's where you are tonight. I know we don't all lament at once. Life is cyclical. Life is seasonal. As spring bursts forth and we end Lent and go into spring, I hope most of you are not lamenting. But there will come a time that you will lament. There will come a time when you will despair. And when you do, do what our Lord did. Go back to the Psalms of Lament, but even more, go back to the truth buried within the Psalms of Lament that promise that even though it's Friday, Sunday's coming. Let's pray.